Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Lenore Skenazy. She's been called America's worst mom for letting her nine-year-old son take the New York subway. She's the founder of the Movement for Free Range Kids and author of a book by the same name. She's also the president of Let Grow, a nonprofit that helps parents, teachers, and organizations find ways to support childhood independence and resiliency. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Lenore. Thank you. I didn't realize I had written that slogan for me that's so deadly boring. Oh, my God. Help them find resiliency in the world ahead as before, John. It's like, no, we're trying to make it, what is it, uh, simple, normal, and legal to give your kids some independence. No, I, 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 took, I took that from something else, so you didn't write I know, that. I think it was me. You know, I'm always rewriting what my mission is, but that was a bad day. <laughs> so, so let's start at the beginning. Um, why, why would you let your nine-year-old son <laughs> ride the New York subway? Gee, why not? I have an extra son at home. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it was not our idea. It was our son's idea, which also sounds crazy. Like, why would you listen to your son? Um, but the reason we listen to our son is because we live in New York City. We're always on the subways. Uh, our son started saying, will you please take me someplace I've never been before and let me find my own way home? And we thought, uh, okay. Um, he's ready for it. So we're ready for it. So my, my husband actually sat on the ground with him with the New York subway map, made sure he understood it, which he did. And then one sunny Sunday, I took him to Bloomingdale's and I left him in the handbag department because that's right where the door is, (laughs) um, to the subway. And, uh, that was it. He, he figured out what it was. You know, he, he knew that that was the day. It wasn't, I was just abandoning him in the handbag department because I saw something glittery or whatever. (laughs) And so he got home and, I didn't write about it uh, immediately, uh, like for a couple of months. I didn't even write about the this uh, thing because it wasn't a publicity stunt and it wasn't a social experiment. It was just part of everyday life uh, in the big city. And the only reason I finally wrote about it was because when I had nothing to say one day and I had a, a column due, I said, to my editor, should I write about, is he taking the subway? Cause I'd been talking to other fourth grade moms, you know, since then. And they, you know, they thought that they hadn't done the same thing. Let's just put it that way. And so I thought, okay, it's a little, little controversy here. Why don't I write about it? And, and that was, that was the impetus. I, the reaction, I mean, people getting upset about this seems. To uh, this day. I mean, I had a radio interview this morning <laughs> who, who called me and said, you did one. I'm like, you know, the guy, my, my son is 20 at this point. You know, I think that the, I think the jury is in, you know, it wasn't that crazy. So, but, but I mean, we like when I was a kid, we rode our bikes all over the place and we rode our yeah, bikes. Yeah. I mean, these bike rides were probably longer than most New York subway rides. They covered, <laughs> you know, potentially more ground. We were gone from our, and this was before we had cell phones or any way to get in touch. Yeah, and yeah. and that didn't seem like a, I mean, is there something particular about the subway that freaks people out? Um, well, there's two things going on. One is, yeah, I mean, people, most people don't live in New York City. And so they only know the city from the media. And, you know, it's a great backdrop for every possible, um, you know, action movie horror story that you can imagine. So, you know, so people, I think, have a a distorted view of what New York City is like. And in terms of the 25 largest cities in America, we are the safest. So that's one thing. But um, so the subway is just, you know, it's iconic and it's underground. It, it, that that has its own little frisson of danger. But I think even if I had written uh, the, the other day, John, John Haidt, uh, last week, he let his nine-year-old walk to school 
And even that got like, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of nice attention, which was great. And then also, um, people chastising him. And I'm saying that that's sort of a nice word for like screaming at him online, you know, like, what about Aton Pates? And, you know, you'll never forgive yourself if she never comes back. And, and I think that's, that's, that's what has interested me a lot more than whether people think the subway is safe or not. It's whether people think any kind of childhood independence, anytime a parent takes their eyes off their kids at all, if they think that is safe. And what's interesting to me is that the childhood you're describing of hopping on your bikes and, you know, going to the Dairy Queen or the library or whatever is, is so, uh, it's so vanished. It's so evaporated that a couple of months ago I was interviewing all these kids, these first through fifth graders uh, at a school, just out of my own curiosity. And one of them, I said, what about like riding your bike? And she said, I don't remember how the topic came up, but she said she'd seen this weird show, like somebody had shown her something on television, not even on YouTube, I think it was on TV, where the kids were riding their bikes and they didn't have helmets and they weren't with an adult and they were just wandering around. And she was like, you know, what kind of strange world is that? It just had nothing to do with her own experience. And I said, do you remember what you were watching? And she said, I think it was like the Brady group. Or <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. I mean, to me, that's mind blowing. If it, it, I keep being reminded of like, like the rainforest disappeared, like nobody noticed. And then suddenly somebody took a satellite photo and, oh, my God, it's a pinprick. Instead of a giant, you know, a continent covered with, with forest, it just kept whittling down. And we didn't even notice it was disappearing. And I feel that the same thing has happened with, like, freedom in childhood which we all took for granted. It was just this natural resource. You had Saturdays, you had after school, you had free time, you had a bike. That has vanished from the earth. And I'm like, hey, look, guys, this is weird. Let's take it, you know, what's lost when this is lost? And so so that's um, that's me going off on a rant. And now I'll stop and you can ask me another question. Well, so when did this, I mean, obviously it hasn't always been this way because any of us probably over the age of 30 have memories of, childhood being exactly this horrifying time of riding your bike around by yourself. Um, so when when did this shift occur? That's, a, that's a, a question I can't answer precisely. It feels like, you know, diminishing, like, like the freedom has been diminishing probably since the 80s and then the 90s and now. And, and there are so many things that, that diminish it that don't look evil and, and probably actually aren't evil. But like after school, if you would have gone to the park, I mean, you're over 30 and maybe under 80. What Did you ever do that? Did you go to the park after school without an agenda? All the time. Yeah, definitely. And then, I mean, every summer vacation, we just left the house in the morning. For the and, whole day. Yeah. yeah. And my, my parents had no idea where it was. She used to, my mom used to blow a whistle hoping that I was somewhere in earshot uh, when it was dinner time. But that that was about it. Yeah, um, that's, I, I think that's getting rare. And I, and one of the reasons is simply that after school, there's so many options and, and it starts seeming normal to put your kid in, you know, if they're doing soccer, I just, I just was talking to a guy who runs a bunch of soccer leagues. It's four days a week, right? So it's two hours each day. So say you get out of school, then you have to 
someone has to get you to the soccer league. And then that someone's probably, you know, often a parent or somebody else, you know, with your family. And then they stay and they watch because what are you going to do for two hours? You're going to go somewhere and then try to come back. That's not going to work. And besides of which, everybody else is sitting there. And then you're driven home. And then it's six o'clock and then there's homework and then there's reading and then there's whatever. So, so there goes your free time. And it's, it's not like somebody said, you know, this is so dangerous. You must stay in the house and I'm going to lock the doors 15 times. It's that it just became, it gradually became normal not to have unsupervised time. You know, the time was going to be spent in a way that was productive and safe and maybe even got you ahead because now, you know, maybe you'll get a scholarship in, in soccer or maybe you'll become a chess champion because you're going to chess class every day. And so suddenly the idea of unstructured, unsupervised time, it's it just became uh, anachronistic. It, it, it uh, evaporated. Well, how, how much do we think the fears, are, you know, I was born in 1980. Uh, and mm -hmm. so that was a time I remember some of the things that were beginning to be discussed at that time, right. such as sa right. the satanic panic. So this oh, idea that there, sure. that there were cultists out there who wanted to take kids and we, we, you know, we used to like kind of scare each other about that Dungeons and Dragons. We talked about that stranger danger in general. There's always a panic, right, yeah. right. But all this stuff, I feel like it kind of grew as I was growing up. Now, of course, I was becoming aware of this stuff, but by the mid-90s or so, you had much more, I guess, quote-unquote, received wisdom that there was you know, poison and Halloween, yes. Halloween candy and there were all these things yeah. around. And that seemed to grow in that period. Uh, and, yeah. and so now we all think that the world is more dangerous. And so some of it is unstructured time and trying to get your kid and to the feeder preschool for Yale and then making sure <laughs> oh that they God. have all the, yeah, they have all their piano and everything. But how right. much do you think it's fear too? Oh my gosh. I, I think it's fear um, mostly. And um, I actually think there's two fears and that they just intertwine. And one is, you know, the fear that your kid will be, you know, poisoned by a stranger or abducted by the guy in the white van. And the other is that your kid won't get into Harvard. And, and those two combine to meaning that your kid can't have any unsupervised time because either they will be in physical danger or they'll be in danger of falling behind. But the physical danger actually went from physical danger to falling behind to emotional danger. We can talk about them all, but the physical danger thing totally ramped up, you know, basically the minute you appeared on earth <laughs> because right before you got there, 1979 is the disappearance of Eitan Pats here in New York city, which people were yelling at Jonathan Haidt about online. Um, you know, why aren't you thinking about a crime that occurred literally 40 years ago before you decide how to, you know, if you should get, let your kid walk down the block. Um, but that was, that was really, uh, there's a book on the history of American kidnappings, strangely enough. Um, and, the author, Paula Fass, who's a historian at Berkeley, um, said that when the Aton story broke, uh, the original theory about it, uh, he was a kid who was age six, he was um, taken from his bus stop on his first day of walking to school by himself in Soho in downtown New York City. Um, the original thought or the thought that the, um, the media put out was that he had been kidnapped by some lovelorn lady who saw this beautiful little six-year-old and wanted to raise him as her own. And so that's sort of where our mindset was then. It wasn't at Law & Order yet, <laughs> Law & Order SVU. Um, and it took a little while for another theory to catch on, or not to catch on, to, to even sort of be um, 
mentioned, which was that, well, you know, sometimes this will sound really weird, but some might be a guy and they might want to do something weird. So it's like, what? What? And it's almost like we lost our innocence. The American public was, you know, not completely naive, but the idea of talking about a crime like that was so shocking that in, in her book, Paula Fast says it's almost like one of those those rides at the at the carnival. It's 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 thrilling, it's terrifying, it's horrifying. Let's do it again. It's it's exciting because you can't believe how awful it is. You can't believe how angry you are that somebody would do this and how saddened you are. And that that giant conflagration of emotions turned out to be fantastic for television ratings. And so a couple of years later, when Adam Walsh is kidnapped, um, the son of John Walsh, and, uh, you know, a terrible fate down in Florida, uh, suddenly it seems like it's happening all the time. You know, you have these two big stories. You have a, a, a miniseries done on Adam Walsh, Adam's Song, I think it was called, that breaks literally all viewership records on television. And, and the producers go, get me more. And then the public is outraged that this has happened at all. And they think it's happening all the time because John Walsh starts saying that it is. And then he puts pictures on milk cartons of children. And suddenly we're all having breakfast with a, a picture of some angelic kid with have you seen me above the photo. And then never a mention that the vast majority of these kids were taken in custodial disputes between divorced parents or were runaways. These were not kids who were abducted by strangers, but we start believing they are. And once you think that your kid going out on a bike, your kid waiting at a bus stop may never come home because so, so many kids don't, of course, parents start changing the way they raise their kids. They start feeling that they have to watch them all the time. And I also was watching last night the Netflix documentary on Ted Bundy. And it is oh, interesting God. to remember Why? that. Do this to yourself. Well, they, they didn't even they didn't even have a term serial killer. I, I remember growing up with the yeah. Ted Bundy trial. So we, but then all of a sudden, in the 70s, we start discovering that there are serial killers out there and some big name ones. And that seemed to add to it also. But I mean, on the yeah. other side, you know, I didn't ride a bike with a helmet either, which was probably stupid. Um, and there's a lot of things that were more dangerous than on like a product level where we should have probably been paying more attention. I think it's interesting when people say, I didn't ride a bike with a helmet and I turned out fine. It was like, well, yeah, because there's like a bunch of there's a bunch of dead kids dead back. Talking, right. Exactly. Um, so isn't that something that, that we've gotten better yeah. at? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of thoughts on, I mean, actually helmets is a really interesting topic itself. Um, you know, people sometimes say, well, we didn't wear seatbelts. And I was like, yes, but whether or not you wear a seatbelt, of course it wears, makes sense to wear a seatbelt. Um, and either way, you're in a car going somewhere. So that hasn't changed your experience very much, except that there's a strap across you. Um, and similarly, you could say that wearing a helmet doesn't change things much. Actually, I think it does because it takes my analogy for that is that bike riding used to be almost the same as walking someplace. It was just a way that you would get somewhere. And so it went from being sort of the equivalent of walking to the equivalent of riding a motorcycle, right? Because now you need a helmet and that sort of changes our perception of who should be doing it at what age and, and whether it's a, a dangerous activity, ipso facto. And, and so I do think uh, I, I'm pro helmet, but I think it did change even our perception of what it means to be a kid to hop on your bike and, and ride your bike to your friend's house. It went from 
not even a second thought to, okay, honey, you got your helmet. Okay. It, it became, um, it, it sort of became more dangerous in our head than I think it actually is. But even so, I love helmets. Um, but there's a difference between, you know, wearing a helmet, wearing the seatbelt, um, recalling the exploding pintos, and not letting your kid wait at the bus stop by themselves or with another bunch of kids or even walk to school or play at the park. And what we've done is we've gone from taking the, the, the thing that interests me most these days, and, and I can't stop talking about it to the point where I actually saw my friend this morning at breakfast almost roll her eyes. She <laughs> said, yes, you've been thinking about that for a while, Lenore, is how did we get to the point where it is considered wise, prudent, loving, and the only decent way to raise a kid to, if your kid is thinking of going, walking to get a, a Slurpee, you have to think, oh, but what if they don't make it? What if they are, you know, what if there's something happens? What if there's a man with a van and they're abducted? How, I could never live with myself. I'll just drive her to get the Slurpee. How did we get to that point when we are actually at a, at a in terms of crime, we're at a, a more safe era than when you were growing up. You know, crime peaked right when you turned 13. It peaked in 1993, and it's been plummeting, thank God, ever since. And we're back to the crime rate of about 1963. But isn't that just yet, because we stopped letting our kids wander get, around get by themselves? <laughs> yeah, people actually ask that a lot. And, and crime is down against adults. You know, rape, murder, arson, burglary, assault are all down, and we're not helicoptering the adults. So there's... There's just a crime has just gone down. I mean, people don't believe it, but it's it's down. And, and there are a lot of theories about why, but it's not that, that I mean, it's if crime has gone down against adults and we're not helicoptering them, it's not the helicoptering thing that is making crime go down. Crime is just going down. I mean, I actually don't know why. Um, and sociologists aren't sure either. But and it's not mass incarceration. So uh you know, even if it hadn't gone on, even if it was still at the rate when you were a kid, your mother let you go outside without her saying, oh, no, you know, I can, I can just imagine. And what if there's a, you know, what if I'm going to the morgue to identify his body? I mean, that's that's the way people think this way. They don't go to the morgue exactly, but they, they do think in terms of these worst case scenarios. I call it worst first thinking. Come up with the worst case first and you proceed as if it's likely to happen. And when I've, I've been, PBS just did a, um, a nice story on Let Grow. They did like eight minutes and they went out and um, they interviewed some kids who were doing the Let Grow project, which is when kids are told by the school, the school, said, the school commits to doing the Let Grow project, which is having all the kids go home for their homework. They have to do something on their own. That's it. They have to do something that they haven't done before on their own. And of course, they talk about it with their parents and we give them a list of ideas and, you know, you can walk to the store, you could ride your bike or whatever. Anyways, they, they filmed this one boy who is probably just a little shorter than me. He was like a, a fifth grader. And that means he was 11, I think. And he was living in a suburb uh, of Long Island, and he had never been further than the end of his block by himself. So the mother, because she's being filmed and because it's the, the Let Grow project for the school, decides to let him go two blocks because two blocks away is the park. 
And so here he is. He's 11 years old. He walks by himself the two blocks. They film him, you know, swinging on the swings, which is no fun if you're just the only kid. And it's not sort of your place. It's, you know, it's this foreign park that's two blocks away. And then um, and he comes home. And in the meantime, they interviewed the mom who said what I've heard every mom saying, which is that I used to do so much more than that, even when I was his age in the same neighborhood. And so there's something really weird about a fifth grader who has never been beyond his block by himself. I mean, that if, if, if I had transported you from your childhood to his childhood, you would have looked agape and go, what do you mean you can't walk beyond the end of the block? What's the matter with your mom? Or what's the matter with your neighborhood? And in fact, it's just, it's a normal neighborhood and it's a normal mom and it's an abnormal era that has become obsessed with danger to the point where we can't let our kids out of our sight. And we sometimes arrest the parents who do let their kids out of their sight because we've become so convinced that anytime a child is not supervised, they are in grave danger. Is some portion of this though, driven by changing child tastes. So for example, this last weekend, um, my my daughter had – my daughter who's nine had three mm -hmm. of her friends ah. over to play and our house like right up the hill from our house is a large wooded area that's great to play in and that she plays in with her brother, her little brother and sister a fair amount. But, uh -huh. but we were uh -huh. like, so are you guys going to go outside? And it was like – no, they, you know, what they wanted to do was they all brought over their iPads and they were going to play. And I'm going to, I'm going to get the name of this game wrong, and my daughter will be mortified if she hears me get it wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but like, call it Robot Blocks or <laughs> <Nice>. something. <laughs> and yeah, and they, they like that was what they wanted to do. They wanted to sit around and play on their iPads together. Um, and so right. is, I mean, is part of this just that like video games are a lot better than they used to be? Just true. I'm yeah, I'm sure that is part of it. Um, the other thing is, if you haven't had the growing up, running around your neighborhood, building a fort, um, you know, playing hide and go seek in the woods or playing tag, to think that you would suddenly love an activity, it's like, would I suddenly spontaneously love playing squash? Probably not. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of what you grow up with. And because we haven't let kids gather together outside in packs and groups like I'm guessing you did, right? Yeah, so did we. I mean, we didn't play a lot of like, kickball and Barbies. I guess you didn't do that. Um, anyway, maybe you did. <laughs> we blew, no I blew them up the with firebo is, firework, fireworks. That, yeah, I, that scares me. Um, <laughs> oh, I found something that gives Lenore concern. There's a cautionary book about the boy who was blinded. Follow my leader. Um, anyway, <laughs> blinded by fireworks. Uh, so, of course, they're going to play what they're familiar with, what they've gotten good at. You know, who wouldn't? So there, part of it is that, you know, the, the online world is extremely fun and, and, um, and it's always there and there's always somebody to play with. You don't have to negotiate. But, but part of it is that you, the kids haven't been meeting in the real world, so they meet up in the virtual world, and that's what they're that's what they like. But but Peter Gray, who's one of the other founders of Let Grow, he's a psychologist from Boston College, and he wrote a book that I love called Free to Learn. That um, John Haidt, who I keep quoting, who is another founder of Let Grow, keeps quoting Peter Gray too, in in his book The Coddling of the American Mind. And um, Peter cites this study that was done. That was a survey, actually, and it asked kids while they were online, um, 
would you rather be outside playing with your friends or here, you know, or playing um, a game on your computer? And 80% said they would prefer to be outside playing with their friends, but, um, and those were kids who were online, but the opportunities for it are so few. I mean, it's cool that your kids are playing with their siblings, so they have an opportunity. I, I don't know, do they play with a lot of other kids in the neighborhoods who come and, and build forts and run around the woods? Yeah, there's a there's three or four neighbor kids that they kind That's of all bop great. around outside. Yeah. That is so great. Um, I think that's what so many of us want for our kids, and and it's rarer. Um, obviously, hasn't disappeared because your kids are doing it, so that's cool. But I would just love to see more of that. And and the the Peter Gray angle that that we've all latched onto is that um, when kids are doing that, you know, there's no agenda and there's no adult saying, "Okay, it's your turn, it's your turn." Then kids are learning all sorts of um, what are they, there's a word in education, social emotional learning, I guess it is, but they're learning, you know, first of all, how to make something happen, which, you know, when you're online, something automatically happens. You choose a game and there it is. But if you're just with a group of people, are you going to play tag? Are you going to build something? Are you going to be, you know, robbers and cops and robbers? Are you going to be, you know, princesses, whatever you have to decide what you're going to do. And then you have to get buy-in. And then if it starts being boring, what you're doing, um, and you want to, push it a little because if something is too easy, you want to make it a little harder. And if something is too hard, you want to stop. I mean, so you're figuring out, first of all, you know, your, your tolerance for risk, and then you're deciding amongst yourselves, are you going to do it this way or that way? Are we going to play baseball with one, you know, just with one handed or something? It's a bad idea. <laughs> um, but then everybody has to vote on it. And that's like, you start learning a little bit about democracy and compromise and when you have a bunch of kids and they're different ages, then you have the older ones sort of have to become sort of step up and become a little bit more mature because they are they're helping the little kid. They're not going to, you know, if you're if you're the 10 year old and you're pitching to the five year old, you're not going to give them your fastest fastball. You're going to throw it gently because you remember what it's like to be there. And that's the beginnings of empathy. And then the five year old who, you know, strikes out does not immediately throw a tantrum the way he might if he was playing with mom or dad because they would give him a million turns because he doesn't want to look like a baby in front of those cool 10-year-olds. And so that's the beginning of, you know, executive function and being able to help control yourself. And when you're doing something that you love, you're willing to, you know, tolerate a lot of frustration because that allows you to keep playing and it allows the group to keep going. And so when you everything is done through a computer or or through an organized activity there's it's it's not the same skill set it's not that there's no skills being built but the skills of getting along with each other and arguing and then being able to to deal with the fact that you were annoyed but you want to keep playing so okay the ball was out and it wasn't really out but then you keep playing those are the skills that we're all worried that kids are not developing because they're so um, there's always somebody there concierging them. And, and the, the example that John and I give a lot is this parents magazine article a couple of years ago asked, it was all these questions about how to raise your kids. And one of them was if my daughter, my daughter's old enough to stay home by herself for a little bit, uh, but now she has a play date over. Can I, 
um, can I still run to the dry cleaners while the, while the play date is over? <laughs> and Parents Magazine said, what did they say? They said, no, I presume. Because yes. I, I'm not right. exactly why? sure why, because I guess kids together get into things that maybe a kid alone wouldn't get into. Yeah, basically it was that. I mean, it was it was the physical danger. First, they talked about some kid always in New Jersey. You, you know, when a journalist is making something up, they say New Jersey. But anyways, a kid in New Jersey had, um, I don't know, microwaved some uh, whatever and uh, pasta and it got it spilled on her and she had to go to the doctor for a burn. So there's the physical danger. And then they said, um, and what if there's a spat? You want to be able to step in before anyone's feelings get too hurt. <laughs> and yeah, I'm glad you're laughing. Uh, why? Why are you laughing? Let's let's unpack this. Well, I mean, I could see. I definitely did things when my parents were gone. I mean, every kid does that. Uh, you know, experimented mm -hmm. by microwaving uh, an Oreo cookie until it caught on fire or something like that. That's fine. Really? But yeah, I mean, of course. But the uh, they but catch on fire if you microwave them long, long enough. Yes, but but the point of the spat thing. I mean, just resolving those yourself is like how you maintain friends and learning that kind of socialization is extremely important. I mean, that sounds like a tattletale situation. The worst thing you could be is the person who runs to your mom to ask you to solve a problem with you and your friend. <laughs> right. I know. But exactly. That, that is exactly my point. And so what Parents Magazine and what the culture at large is telling parents is that once again, your kids are in constant danger. They're in physical danger. They'll, you know, they'll catch on fire and they're in emotional, psychological danger. What if there's a spat and you're not there? So you're really undermining uh, parents' belief in their own kids' development and, and you're sort of overestimating the psychological trauma of a spat with a friend. You know, you want to be able to intervene. Well, you intervene you know, when something terrible is going to happen, when, when the boulder is coming, uh, the intervene in a spat assumes that your kid can't handle it and that emotionally they'd be scarred. I mean, it's just, it's just pointless to constantly intervene. But what, what is a friendship? It's a negotiation. And so to be telling parents, don't trust children to be able to handle anything that you could handle as a kid. You know, that time by yourself, that time with a friend, that time you got into a scrape or the time you got into an argument is really why I'm so upset with the culture all the time, because it's constantly suggesting that somehow this generation of kids can't handle anything physically, emotionally or psychologically that all of us are damn proud that we handle. We, we've been talking about this so far like it's a – this is a uniform thing that's happening a, kind of just across the culture everywhere all the time. Um, but is it is it that dispersed, or is this you know do we see is this primarily a a feature of say middle yeah middle class upper middle class or suburban or you know yeah. I mean because when I, I imagine the people yeah. who are like upset about this stuff it's the the image that always comes to mind is like Park Slope moms right <laughs> uh, oh my god what did I hear about Park Slope yesterday oh yeah that uh, I, from my breakfast again where my friend was rolling her eyes uh, was just telling me a Park Slope anecdote that I won't tell here um, I think it's more widespread than that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that, um, oh God, there's so many reasons. One is that there was this big New York, here I am quoting the New York Times to prove that it's not just a Park Slope problem. Huh. Um, <laughs> but the Park, the, the New York Times did do an article that's, that, that was based on broad sociological research on across the board, 
whether parents can afford it or not, and that's what's the killer, um, hyper-parenting, intensive parenting, is considered the best kind of parenting. And so if you have a ton of money, you send your kids to lacrosse camp. And if you have very little money, you're sending them nonetheless to an after-school program um, you know, run by some local organization where they'll get um, extra homework help and then extra this and extra that. So, or you're trying to make sure that you're spending the most time and money um, with the kids, even if you have very limited amounts of both. So it really is a, it's sort of a dogma that more parenting is better and more money and more time and more supervision. So, um, so I don't think it's just the, uh, the Park Slope moms, although that is certainly a, a hot spot on the map. And then um, I, I, get, I get stories from around the country, and I don't know what these neighborhoods are like, but I did hear from, but a mom in Kentucky, which is not Park Slope, Brooklyn, uh, wrote to me because the school has said that now any child up through fifth grade, when they get off at their bus stop, there has to be an adult there to walk the kid home. And if there isn't, um, if there's three times when there's nobody, no adult, pre-approved adult there to walk the kid home, the school will call Child Protective Services. Um, so that's, that's, that has nothing to do with being, you know, wealthy or even a choice that I want my kid to be, to be with my kid all the time and to spend all this time. So she was upset because she has her, her father is at the house after school. And one time when the kid was being dropped off at, at the bus stop, the father happened to be, uh, the grandpa, happened to be in the bathroom. So he missed, that was strike A. And strike B, the kid wasn't supposed to come home one afternoon. And so the, the grandpa wasn't around and the kid came home. And, and, and so he wasn't at the bus stop. So she's so worried. What about the third time? God forbid, grandpa's, you know, napping or has diarrhea, you know, you know, they're going to go to child protective services as if they are negligent parents. That is, that's crazy. And that's, and that's a mandate because of this, this national belief that anytime a child is unsupervised, they're in danger. And then I heard, not to pick on the South, but we have a case now of a mom outside of Atlanta. And I don't know if this is a Tony suburb or not, but her kid goes, two blocks to the Y, he's seven years old, and he has his swim lesson, and on his way back across from the Y is a, a grocery store that always gives out free cookies. And so three times he has gone there to get a cookie, and three times somebody has called the CPS on them. And so they, they keep deflecting CPS, but like, don't we have any rights? Doesn't a seven-year-old have any rights to, to walk home from a a swim lesson and get a, a cookie on the way. So there's something oppressive about this, this thought that like kids are in danger and then we better, uh, you know, teach those parents a lesson. And then once it seeps into the government, getting activated into these families' lives simply because they trust their kids or they trust their community, um, then you, you know, that, that's what pushed me. <laughs> that's why I'm talking to Cato. <laughs> you know? It's like something struck me as weird. It's like, I don't want the government telling me what age my kid can walk home from a swimming lesson or whether he can come home from the bus stop by himself or whether grandpa has to escort him like he's three. I mean, it's, if you have laws that are based on hysteria and 
and the social norms that feed into the hysteria that if you're not with your kid, your kid is falling behind or in danger. I'm just trying to get us back to the idea that kids are not in constant danger. And in fact, some independence turns out to be really crucial for them. And we're taking that away and we're saying we're making them safer. We're making them safe from something that is almost not going to happen at all and making them a little less safe when it comes to being fully fully forged for adulthood. Yeah, that's right. What are the consequences that we've actually seen of this so far? Because we've, we did have uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt on the show to talk about the coddling of the American mind. So it seems that maybe there are some consequences. Is there any show they haven't been on? <laughs> <laughs> True. Head. I feel like I'm like living in a 24-7 John and, and Greg uh, channel here. Yeah, the, um, but, the, but that some of the, so some consequences on campus possibly. Yeah. Maybe anxiety and suicide rates. What, what, what sort of things are we seeing as possibly a, a consequence of this parenting, helicopter parenting? Well, I wish I had the charts that um, Tracy, who's our executive director of Let Grow, took home yesterday after we did our little presentation um, on Staten Island, which is thinking of having its schools um, do the Let Grow project. Yeah, anxiety is up. Uh, you know, cutting is up. I, I hate to talk about these depressing things. Uh, it seems like suicide is up. It doesn't seem like it is. Um, among young people, uh, you know, to, to me, I'll just give you my my favorite recent example of what I think is the consequence of this, which is I was interviewing the, the same group of kids where the one kid had like seen the Brady Bunch and just hadn't understood what was going on. It just did not compute. Um, I interviewed a kid who was a third grader. So he's eight years old and third or fourth grader, whatever, young kid. And I was asking him, okay, so you could have, if you could have freedom, you know, if you could do something on your own, what would it be? You know, what's your dream of getting out there and, you know, being a man sort of thing? And he said, well, he really wanted to get to judo by himself. And I'm like, yes, this is my kid. Okay, let's hear. What are you going to do? Uh, you know, are you going to bike there? Are you going to walk there? Scooter? You know, what? how are you getting there? And he looked at me like, huh? And he said, well, no, I will open the car door <laughs> and then I will get out and I will close the door behind me and then I will walk into the dojo or whatever it's called while my mom parks the car in the parking lot. So if you're asking Baby what are the consequences, <laughs> if you're talking about, I mean, like imagine you at eight years old thinking that like the dream of freedom is to walk the 20 feet from the car into the judo class while your mom you know, without your mom for like another 87 seconds because she's parking the car and then coming in. I mean, I just, bit shocking, I just yeah. want people to go like, ah, there's something very strange about a society that has become so obsessed with non-safety that kids don't even know that there's an alternative world, existence, history of kids having any any freedom. I mean, it really is the equivalent of, of being, you know, a prisoner. <laughs> you're, you're transported places, you're dropped off, you're watched, you're picked up, you know, you're not getting there on your own. The, the, the words drop off and pick up are, have replaced arrival and dismissal at schools because we used to arrive 
And then we were dismissed, dismissed, go home. And now it's always drop off, which means that somebody has dropped you off and pick up, which means that somebody is picking you up to take you someplace like a package. And, and to pretend that that doesn't have any repercussions on the national soul is, is, uh, I'm deflated, is bad, is wrong. How do we begin to push back on that though or how do we shift it in the right direction? I mean because to some extent what you're – you know, so I – as a parent, I send my kids out to to play and let – you know, at least my oldest because my our younger two are in kindergarten so they're still pretty young. But like <laughs> you know, let yeah. them go do things by themselves and – but there still is like – you know, there's this visceral like my job, my number one job as a parent is to keep these tiny people safe. Um, and and the worst possible thing that could ever happen would be for something bad to happen to them. Right. Um, right and so right, you're asking. Right. So it's, yeah, it's one thing to ask me to take on risks, but for me to right. like push risks onto them, no matter how small, right, is just right, this visceral right, right, right. hard thing okay, to do. So, yeah. So this is literally what I was boring my friend with at breakfast today. When I was five, which was kindergarten, my mom, who quit her job to stay at home with me and my sister, um stayed at home. You know, I walked to school and when I got to the corner, there was a crossing guard who was a 10-year-old. And so um, what what is fascinating is that my mom, whose whose whole job was same as yours, same as anybody's ever to keep our, you know, to make sure our children live till, you know, after we're gone, um, didn't go through that litany of like, my job, my number one job is to keep them safe. These tiny children, no matter what, from even, you know, a one in a billion chance I could never live with myself. That was not a mantra. Nobody thought that way. And it's not that she didn't care about my safety or want the best for me or or think about her her job. But her job was not always in terms of how would I feel if my child dies? That was just not the way we thought. And that's what's interesting is that we frame our our parenting as if it's innate to think that way. And if it's innate to think that way, why weren't our parents thinking that way? Why aren't parents in Germany thinking that way? Why aren't parents in Turkey thinking that way? So there's something new to even framing it as life and death the second we let our kids out of the house. And if your question is, how do we start not thinking that way. We still care as much. We still love them as much. We still want their safety and their their lives to be long and healthy just as much. But we don't immediately start with the death thing <laughs> whenever we think about our kids. That that is my question. I I'm I'm really working on that. And the only thing that I've seen that works is not listening to me for 47 minutes talk about, oh, there's never been a safer time to be children and children are now having anxiety because we're not letting them go. And really, you have to think about the home of the free and the land of the brave. Um, none of that works. The only thing that works is somebody, some, some impetus, and sometimes it's an accident, pushing you to give your kids freedom for one day, for them to go do something on their own. And when they come back, and you realize as they're walking through the door, that's my boy, look what he did. That's, that feeling is the only thing that changes parents, that, that surge of pride. And I was talking last night to Helen Fisher, who is um, a psychologist, an anthropologist. She 
well-known. Anyways, and I was saying, to me, it seems like what's happening, because when I've seen parents excited by the Let Grow project, this thing that I'm pushing, which is the schools having the kids all go home and do something on their own, the parents' thrill level is so much higher than whatever the kid just did. The kid just went to and got, you know, the bread for dinner. And, and to the parents, they're, they're so ecstatic. I mean, it's great. But it, it is odd to me that they're beside themselves with joy at something that would have been completely anodyne a generation ago. And so I said to Helen, I was like, it's like they're feeling, it's like, it's like we all know that someday we won't be here. And our, the reason we have kids in a way is to make sure that like they're, they go on, part of us goes on when we're gone. And until you see your kid do something independently, all you know is that they're safe because you're there, because you're with them. You've driven them, you've helped them, you've, you've, you know, you've intervened with, they were having a spat. But when they do something on their own, it's your first revelation that you've done your job and they will be fine when you are gone. And she said, I think that's it. She said, it's so she said, it's not an emote. It's not, she said, it's not something psychological. It's Darwinian. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know. I'm going to talk to her more about it, but I think she's right. There's something that is primal about once you let your kids go, realizing things are going to be okay. It's great. My kid is going to be, is going to go on and, and I can relax a little. And so you can't relax until you've done it. But somebody has to push you to do it because until you do it, you're not relaxed. You can't even imagine it being okay. So the only thing that I think can really change parents and America is a gigantic push, which is what Let Grow is trying to do, of getting parents to just try once, just try this one thing. You must let your kid walk two blocks to the park, go get a Slurpee, play in the yard, um, climb a tree, let them do it just that once because the emotions will follow the action, but I, we have to push the action first. So, so that's that and having schools stay open for free play after school. We call it the Let Grow Play Club. It's Peter Gray's idea. These are the two really basic free <laughs> ideas that Let Grow is, is promoting because if you have free play after school, you have all those things we were talking about before, all the you know, all the social emotional things that go along with trying to make a game happen and, and having fun with your friends and arguing and, and different ages together um, recreated in a place that parents feel is safe enough, which is at the school. So um, Free Play Club and the Lecro Project are, you know, they sound really simple and they are really simple and, and that's, what we're, that's what we're pushing at the moment. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.